I wish to find a lost city. What you seek is far greater than you ever imagined. It is your destiny. That's a clip from a movie called The Lost City of Z, which is very loosely based on British explorer Percy Fawcett's quest to find a lost city in the Amazon. But are lost cities and the cultures that they foster ever truly lost? In a new book, science journalist and novelist Anna Lee Newitz goes on a personal quest to dig up the real-life archaeology and history behind four so-called lost cities. Greetings, Earthlings! I'm Alan Boyle, the mastermind behind Cosmic Log, and one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetteplace, as we talk with Annalie Newitz about four lost cities and how their stories can keep us from losing out on what makes cities great. Annalee Newitz has been writing about science, technology, and culture since 1999 for publications including The New York Times and New Scientist. And Newitz's books span a spectrum stretching from fictional tales such as Autonomous and The Future of Another Timeline to the cold, hard facts about extinction-level threats in a book called Scatter, Adapt, and Remember. Newitz's new nonfiction book, Four Lost Cities, traces what happened to Chattelhoyuk in Turkey, Pompeii in Italy, Angkor in Cambodia, and Cahokia in the American Midwest. Here's a spoiler alert. Calling them lost cities is something of a misnomer. Annalie Newitz explains why that's so in this Zoom conversation with Dominica Fetteplace and me. Thanks so much for being with us, Annalie. I really love the book for Lost Cities. I, I grew up on a farm in Iowa, and uh, every once in a while, my dad would come across an arrowhead or some interesting artifact in the field, and, and I still treasure those artifacts. And I, I learned that there was this huge metropolis called Cahokia, which uh, was not far from where I grew up. It's in Illinois, and so it's just down the river a little bit. And so you had me at Cahokia when I found out about this book. Uh, I was intrigued to read that when you started the research for this book, you initially intended to focus on the cities of tomorrow and how to make them last forever. And then the focus shifted to the evolutionary arcs that have been traced by uh, cities that have faded away, or, or have they? Could you talk about the process that led to the, your shift in perspective? Sure. Yeah. So I I write science fiction and I, I write a lot about the future. And um, of course, science fiction doesn't have to be about the future, but often it is. And so, yeah, I started out, I had this grand, crazy idea that I would visit 12 cities. So the book would be, I guess, 12 cities of tomorrow or some terrible title like that. And um, I was, I wanted to think about the question of what allows a city to last because there are cities like that. We have cities like Istanbul that have lasted for thousands of years. Um, Cairo has been around for a really long time. 
Beirut has been around for thousands of years. So I kept asking myself, like, how can we make all our cities like that, basically? Like, because that that should be the the point, you know, is that we want our cities to last forever. And then the more I did research, the more I became interested in cities that hadn't lasted forever and cities that had been great, famous cities like Angkor, um, Pompeii, what had made them not last. In the case of Pompeii, it's a little obvious, although it turned out that the story was way more complicated when, when I looked into it, as many things are. And I thought that partly this would be interesting because, uh, as you said, it kind of provides like a narrative arc of a city. We see it from the beginning to the end, and it kind of allows us to understand how cities evolve. Um, the city becomes a kind of character in a way. And it also allows us to understand why people do leave cities, like what goes wrong. Um, and I think that is a, almost a better way of thinking about how do we make our cities robust and resilient in the present? Because when you have a city that people abandon for the same reasons over and over again, which is what I found, um, that starts to kind of make you think, all right, maybe we can incorporate those lessons into urban planning of the future. So it's kind of a sneaky way of still having the book be about the future, but the lessons are coming from the past. So it's really, how can we look at these cities, figure out where they went wrong and not do that again, <laughs> which humans are not always good at learning from the past, but we can try. And so that's what I, I wound up doing with this book is to just try to get us to learn a little bit. Uh, I was wondering what drew you to these particular cities? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it actually took me a super long time to winnow it down because as I said, I started with 12 cities and it was a combination of things. Um, one was purely pragmatic. They had to be cities that I could go to and that I could spend some time in. Um, and so some of the cities I had on my list uh, they were either very inaccessible for just physical reasons or political reasons, like they were in places where uh, it would have been very difficult and expensive for me to get around. So I also really wanted to make sure that the cities represented different time periods in human urban history and were on different continents as much as possible, because I didn't want to have yet another book that was like focused on one city in Europe, one city in America, one city in another place where white people live. So I really benefited in the end from uh, partly luck and uh, partly just really sticking to a small number of cities uh, to be able to do that. And so each of these cities has a very unique life history. They all um, kind of were part of civilizations that developed independently of each other. They all wound up having urban problems that were kind of similar, but also really quite that that were sort of the problems were caused by things that were quite different. So it really let me explore all <laughs> all the ways that cities can go wrong, and uh, that was uh, part of the fun, but also part of the difficulty because with each city, I had to kind of relearn everything. Um, and and archaeology in those places is really different too. So it took me like seven years to to do this. Do you have a Cliff's Notes version of what went wrong with these cities? Is there a common thread or is each city different? I, I suppose the answer is both, right? 
It is both. So let me um, introduce you to the four cities and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about their common thread. Um, so the first of the cities in the book is Chitalhuyuk, which is a Neolithic city that was really happening about 9,000 years ago in central Turkey. We skip several thousand years and we move on to Pompeii, which was a Roman resort town on the Bay of Naples. It was a um, it was very famous for its tasty food and um, lovely beaches. And so a lot of rich Romans uh, would hang out there, um, you know, during the colder months and or during the summer, whenever they felt like hanging out there. And uh, I think we all know what happened to Pompeii. We've seen the action movie. And um, then uh, I look at two cities that are roughly contemporaneous, Angkor, which was the capital of the Khmer Empire that covered a huge part of Southeast Asia and is located in, in Cambodia today. Uh, and that was a, a, a very big city that lasted for a very long time, but it was kind of at its height about a thousand years ago. And that was roughly the same time that Cahokia was at its height, the city that you mentioned at the beginning, an indigenous American city. Uh, it's located in Southern Illinois, right near East St. Louis. Um, and in fact, part of the city is in East St. Louis and part of the city was in St. Louis as well across the river. So it was quite a big sprawling uh, garden city, much like Angkor. Angkor was also very sprawling and had lots of farmland. So what these cities have in common is that they were basically at the center of their civilizations, as far as we know. Um, Pompeii, of course, wasn't, it wasn't Rome, but like it was, it was a very popular resort for Romans and they all were abandoned. I don't like to use the term, uh, you know, fallen or collapsed for these cities because their cultures didn't collapse. They just, the cities themselves were abandoned by people who basically in a lot of cases just got sick of um, how the cities were being run with the exception of Pompeii. Pompeii was buried in about 25 feet of hot ash by Mount Vesuvius. So that's a different story. And that was actually fun to have that as a contrast with these other three cities where people did over time, in every case, it took at least a hundred years for the cities to, to empty out and, and really more like 200 years. And people kept living there. You know, the people, the original builders of the cities packed up and left over time and then new groups would come in there's really no such thing as a lost city when, you know, when, when Westerners first encountered Angkor, for example, there were monks living there. Um, when uh, white settlers first encountered Cahokia, they named this ancient city Cahokia because the Cahokia tribe was living there. They weren't the ones that built it, but they were there. So they got to have their name on the, the city that they didn't build. So the thing, the thread between all these cities is that they encounter a combination of some kind of climate disaster or natural disaster, usually a slow moving one. So something like flooding over many years or uh, drought or infrastructure problems. Um, at Angkor, they had a very elaborate water system uh, that had to be maintained and the ruling elites stopped paying people to maintain it. And I mean, that's a gross oversimplification of what happened, but essentially they were mistreating their workers. And then that would be coupled with political instability. And so the thing that I learned in this, in working on this book is that you really can't take a city out with the natural disaster unless the government is also unstable. So when people ask me about the pandemic, like when, did any of these cities get destroyed by pandemic? Because of course that's on all our minds. Uh, the answer is no, none of them did. Um, and none of them were even destroyed by 
some of the incredible natural disasters they went through, it was really because it was the one-two punch of not having good political leadership or political organization and having some kind of environmental problem, uh, whether that was within the city because of the infrastructure or or because of some kind of weather problem or climate problems. So, so this is a tough time for us to be thinking about this because I think many places in the world, including the U.S., we are having big questions about our government and our governance, and we're also having climate disasters and a pandemic. So, <laughs> so this is a good time to be thinking about how do we want to um, how do we want to reimagine our governments to be to help us be resilient against these kinds of disasters because they're going to keep happening. That's so interesting. You journeyed to each of these cities and you have the descriptions of visiting the the digs and talking to archaeologists, but then presumably you came home after each journey. So I'm wondering, what did San Francisco look like to you each time you came back to it? That's a really good question because I did start working on this book because I love cities so much and especially my home, San Francisco. And, you know, it's funny because once you start looking at cities with archaeologists, all of the cities you visit start to feel like archaeological sites in the making. And so I started paying attention to really weird little things in my city. Like I'll come across, you know, an old pole on the street that's clearly 100 years old and it's got some weird bulbous metal thing attached to it. And I'm like, what is this? What did they use it for? What, what, you know, what could this possibly be connected to? And San Francisco has lots of great weird little things like that. Like um, after the 1906 earthquake, a lot of uh, measures were put in place to make sure that the city would never burn down again. Cause that was the big problem. It wasn't really the quake. It was that the city burned down. And um, so there were these huge cisterns planted under the streets all over the city especially in high elevations, because the idea would be you could kind of connect a hose to it and it would run downhill uh, more easily. And so <clears throat> when you walk around in San Francisco, if you see a street uh, where the intersection has a ring of bricks around it, it seems like, why would you plant a ring of bricks in the street? And it's because it's marking the place of an old cistern. And so I love finding things like that. Um, and oftentimes I chew the ear off of whoever I'm taking a walk with in the city saying like, you know, this came from this time period. So the other thing is that archaeology will make you think really differently about your garbage because archaeologists learn almost everything from garbage. It's like what, you know, about everyday life, you know, what did people throw away tells you about what they used in their everyday lives. So every excavation I've been at you know, there's always a moment where they're like, and then we found a trash pit. Yes. And, you know, what did we find in the trash pit? It was broken plates and all this other cool stuff. And so whenever I'm throwing things away now, I'm like, oh, someday someone's going to find this and they're going to think this was really important. And it's actually a thing I'm throwing away. So I, I definitely, um, I definitely look at all aspects of urban life through the lens of, you know, his, historians who will come here in a thousand years and, and wonder what the heck we were doing with all those little gray boxes that have toxic materials inside of them. <laughs> the, 
what is so funny about the garbage? Um, of course, when I was reading uh, this book, Four Lost Cities, and, and I'm reading it, in, you know, in San Francisco, the city is starting to feel like a little bit abandoned. A lot of people are moving out. So my question for you is, are these are, are people going to come back? Like, what's what do you think San Francisco is going to look like post pandemic? Um, I think that people are going to come back a little bit. Um, I'm sure there will be some people who leave and, and never return. I've been um, following closely reports about urban abandonment during the pandemic because there were early uh, stories back in March and April of last year that uh, you know there was massive urban abandonment and everybody was leaving the cities to go to the country. It turned out that wasn't true. Um, more recent studies uh, done late last year show that, in fact, fewer people were moving last year than in a typical year. And the only abandonment that we saw, if you can even call it abandonment, um, is that basically rich people were leaving Manhattan and San Francisco. So that could be the early stages of a greater abandonment. One of the things that happened at Angkor in Cambodia was that the first, kind of the first big moment in the city's abandonment was that the elites and the royal court left the city and they went down south to what became Phnom Penh. And so, you know, when elites leave a city, when rich people leave, that does affect the economy. It does affect the livelihoods of, of other people in the city who kind of depend on wealth to do service jobs, for example. So I I think in this case, though, we're much more likely to see something like what we saw after the dot-com crash in San Francisco, which is when I first moved to the city. So it was quite, uh, it was quite apocalyptic um, in 2000, 2001. There was a lot of abandonment by the same groups of people, wealthy people, upper middle-class people. And then over the course of a couple of years, the city completely rejuvenated. And that's one of the things that we see over and over in urban history is that cities go through periods of abandonment and then revitalization. And so the big question is, when do you tip over from that normal ebb and flow to something that's greater and greater and greater abandonment? And in San Francisco, I don't think we're there yet. Um, But I will say that I am a lot more worried about wildfires and other climate change caused disasters um, than I am pandemic. I think the pandemic, it will eventually be over within a year-ish, hopefully. (laughs) Uh, And so when we hit wildfire season again, that's when I think, you know, if we keep getting hit with wildfires over and over and over for five, six years, and the state government continues to flail pathetically, I think we could be looking at something much bigger, an abandonment pattern that's much more severe. And so I think over the next 10 years, it would be good to watch not just San Francisco, but a lot of Western uh, cities to see um, how we're affected by not being able to breathe for several months out of the year. It was really intriguing uh, toward the end of the book. Uh, You suggest that some of these great cities, including San Francisco, might not exist in 500 years because of the impact of climate change. I was particularly struck by the idea that future archaeologists might have to go underwater to study San Francisco. So uh, do you have uh, further insights into what the history of cities and the citizens in 
these uh, areas that could be affected by climate change? Uh, if you were to write a book about it, how would you how would you write the science fiction of it? The science fiction of that. I mean, luckily, there's other people like Kim Stanley Robinson who've been kind of thinking about this stuff too. And of course, he has a novel about what happens to New York after it's basically flooded. And I think. You know, I, I definitely buy a lot of his ideas about this, which is that people would just continue to live there and they would come up with ways of dealing with um, the new environment. I think in San Francisco, you know, there's a couple of possibilities. One is that we would just live in a kind of flooded city and there'd be islands. And um, because once water levels rise, San Francisco will become kind of a little archipelago. So you could see something like that. I think more likely what'll happen is just that San Francisco will move inland. Um, and so what we think of as Oakland will be invaded by San Francisco. And that will be a very interesting political trajectory. Um, it, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if um, what, what the city will be in 500 years. Will it just be Oakland and San Francisco will have kind of faded away? Um, but we've seen this happen over and over. There's lots of archaeological sites in Greece and Rome that are underwater. And um, I actually, for for a hot minute, was like, okay, maybe I'll learn how to scuba dive and like be able to visit some of these sites. And then I was like, you know, nah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to do that. Um, I'll just rely on other people's reports. And of course, San Francisco itself used to be, um, the Bay used to just be a stream. And so there's a lot of indigenous campsites uh, here in the Bay Area that are submerged. Um, and so under the Bay. And so I think, um, you know, maybe that that uh, process will just continue. And so, yeah, in 500 years, you know, you'll dive into the Bay and you'll find, um, you know, white settler culture layered on top of indigenous culture, layered on top of just whatever was here before humans. So another lesson I took from the book uh, was that when you're looking at a city, it's not always about the stone monuments. And uh, for example, Angkor and Cahokia weren't recognized for the great cities that they were because they weren't like those cities of Rome and, and Greece. Uh, are there things that we could imagine about how the cities of tomorrow might be fundamentally different from the cities of today? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, the thing about uh, Cahokia, for example, and it was the same thing at Angkor, is that most of the everyday houses, places like where you and I would live, were built from wood, so they didn't survive. Um, so when archaeologists came, they were like, oh, these cities were real small because look, it's just this temple and this temple was must have been the city uh, because they just couldn't perceive um, the the faint remains of roads and um, uh, housing foundations, uh, which now we have technology to kind of find that using LIDAR. I mean, my hope is that we're going to be building more like the people at Cahokia and Angkor in a more sustainable way. And that our houses will be, um, if not made from wood, which of course is a precious resource, um, that they will be made of things that are biodegradable um, or that are even living materials. Um, there's a lot of architects now who are thinking about how to build with living materials for all kinds of reasons. And so it's possible that um, in a weird way, if we're lucky, uh, our future cities will leave less of a trace than our, our current cities. Um, you know, 
we talk about how we're living in the Anthropocene era uh, in in geological time. And the way that future archaeologists will recognize the Anthropocene is because there's going to be a layer of plastic in in the geological record. And so when you do your stratigraphy, uh, you'll see a layer um, of, you know, um, old cell phones and Tupperware and stuff like that. So I really hope that layer is going to be behind us and that we will have much more healthy and sustainable layers after that. So um, it's hard to know for sure, because obviously cities are very particular to the cultures they come out of. So my guess, my hope would be that our cities continue to evolve uh, in slightly different ways, like that we get to have different kinds of urban experiments in different places so that we can figure out what's the best way for humans to live in high density settlements in harmony with the environment. Uh, That's the big question. How do you do that? How do you bring nature into the city, but also how do you continue to have the cool stuff that cities have, like high-speed internet and parties and concerts and restaurants. And that's that's what we love about cities. People, people come to cities to party and to meet other people. And it was funny because I every time I would talk to an archaeologist about their city, I would be like, well, why do people come here? And in my head, I kept thinking, oh, they came here for economic reasons. Like, obviously, it was motivated by financial reasons. And every single archaeologist would be like, well, they came because of pageantry. Like they don't want to say party, right? Because <laughs> that'll sound too lowbrow. You know, there were the they were, they were these incredible pageants, and I was like, so yeah, people came to have fun, um, and people, you know, at Pompeii where we have lots of written records, we know that there were like famous restaurants that people love to go to, and that was an attraction. So um, we're never going to lose that desire to have good food and crazy entertainment. That is so funny. People just really want to party. I know. That's the thing. (laughs) They want to party. Now we can't. There are no (sighs) restaurants, no parties. (laughs) Yeah, no, we're all feeling it very deeply right now. But yeah, it is funny that it's like, that's, that's kind of the perennial human quest is like, how can I find the best friends to party with in the best place? And cities turn out to be a good answer to that question. That is so well put. I love it. Um, you, uh, you write fiction and you write nonfiction. I'm, I'm a big fan of your work in both genres. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'm curious to know how does your process differ when you're writing fiction or when you're writing nonfiction? It's quite different. And I, I have a lot more anxiety about my nonfiction because I want to get everything right. And inevitably I will get something wrong because, um, it's just not possible to be perfect. Um, And uh, I'm always striving to fact check it as much as I can. I think, strangely, one of the things in common between the two is that I do interview scientists for both my fiction and my nonfiction. Um, Obviously, I interview a lot more for my nonfiction. But, um, you know, I'm working on a novel right now that's about terraforming. And I've interviewed like six or seven scientists already just to figure out how rivers work and like how atmosphere can be built and things like that. I think there's a lot of spillover between my fiction and nonfiction. Um, I, while I was writing for Lost Cities, I wrote Future of Another Timeline, which is a time travel novel. And that was completely because I was just wishing I could get into a time machine and visit these places. And I was like, well, okay, I'll just have some fiction over here where I get to do that. 
So I'd say the um, the feelings that go into them are the same, but uh, the process um, with journalism is so much, or it's so oriented around making sure that everything is accurate and uh, factual. Um, and in fiction, I don't have to worry about that. I can just lie and people can do whatever I want them to do. And like, if I want them to appear in a certain scene, they just will. <laughs> Unlike in my nonfiction where I'm like, how do I make this scene flow? Because chronologically speaking, the way it happened in real life was super boring. So how do I, without lying, kind of change things around? And so that, yeah, like I said, creates some more anxiety. <laughs> Are there some really off the wall ideas for future cities that you're dying to work into a, a science fiction novel because of what you've done on Four Lost Cities? Definitely. And uh, several of them are in the novel I'm working on right now. Um, uh, one of them is definitely um, Uplifted Animals you got to have uplifted animals if you're going to have a really good city. That's apparently that's what my brain has decided. Um, So uh, just so that you have, it's kind of an imaginary way of depicting kind of getting consent from the environment to build something. And uh, that's just something you never have as, as humans in real life. You know, when you're building a city, you can do an environmental impact report but you can't actually go out and um, ask the local seabirds like, Hey, is it okay if we build over here? Is that going to mess up your nesting? So I I think that's one of my main fantasies is just somehow having a way of communicating better with everything in our environment. Uplift is the idea that you enhance the intelligence and the capabilities of other species. There's a whole series of novels uh, on the uplift theme. Am I right? On yeah, that? it's a huge, I mean, it's a huge trope in science fiction and fantasy of the idea that non-human animals would achieve human-like intelligence uh, somehow. Either we, either humans would do it to them or they would evolve that way or there'd be magic involved somehow. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a common fantasy. I mean, I think it probably goes back to fairy tales where people talk to animals. Um, well, we know you're real busy. You're promoting this book and you're writing another book. You're busy researching. But uh, for fun, what are you reading or watching or listening to? I listen to a lot of podcasts um, for fun. So uh, I listen to Shortwave, which is um, a daily science podcast from NPR that I love. Um, and it's always really uh, fun, and they they pick topics that you might not expect. Um, and uh, I also listen to a podcast called Who Weekly, which um, if you're not able to like soak up all the celebrity news that you want, um, it's two hosts who will kind of deconstruct uh, silly celebrity news about. Okay, I'm um, writing that one down. Who Weekly? Yes. <laughs> And um, their biggest preoccupation is whether an influencer or celebrity is a who, as in someone you know, but you don't know why, or a them, which is someone who's famous and you know why they're famous, you know? So, um, yeah, these are the kinds of delightful distractions um, that I have. Um, I'm also uh, in the middle of reading um, Cadwell Turnbull's uh, forthcoming novel, which is called um, No Gods, No Monsters. And um, it's amazing. I can't wait to have everyone else read it as well. Are there any particular 
novels about science fiction cities that you love or that you just cringe over now that you've done four <laughs> lost cities? Oh, man. I mean, there's a lot of cringy stuff. Um, that's easy. But N.K. Jemison's latest uh, trilogy, which starts with the novel The City We Became, really captures for me a lot of the feelings I have about cities, a lot of the ideas I have about how cities are made of the people in them, and that that's what's really important about a city is not its great monuments, but it's its great people. Um, so, And also just the way that uh, Jemison writes about New York is just incredible. It, it's very emotional. Um, I really love China Mieville's City in Perdido Street Station, which is kind of his classic book in the Boss Log series. And um, again, I like it because the city itself is bizarre. Uh, it's full of weird stuff. And it's also about kind of the politics of cities. Oh, and also another great city is um, Saladin Ahmed's uh, city in Throne of the Crescent Moon. Um, I think we all are sad that that book never got a sequel. <laughs> um, I mean, we're lucky in that now Saladin is writing comic books that are amazing. Um, but uh, that that's such a great city. It's it's a medieval city that's sort of magical, but also very realistic. And we get to see an uprising in the city, which is something that I write about a lot in my book. So I was definitely thinking a lot about that city. So those are some good places to start. But there's just there's so many I should make like a, a reading list of like cool SF cities, because that's one of the joys of science fiction and fantasy is getting to create a metropolis that's all yours. Well, Four Lost Cities is so readable that I, I feel as if that should be on the list as well. Uh, in some ways, it does read like a science fiction or fantasy novel, and, and that's what I love about it. So thank you so much for being with us, Sanali. And, yeah, and thanks for having me. Good luck with the book. This is great. Oh, thanks. For links to all of Annalie's book recommendations and to learn more about the archaeology of lost and found cities, check out the full Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. While you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. You can follow the link from Cosmic Log. I'd like to thank Anna Lee and W.W. W. Norton Books for the interview, and thank James Emley for his rendition of the Cosmic Log theme, which was composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to the Fiction Science Podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. Until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.